A very warm welcome to the Leaders with Babies podcast. My name is Verena Hefti. I'm the CEO and founder of Leaders Plus, an award-winning social enterprise dedicated to supporting leaders with babies and with young children to continue to progress their careers. Today's podcast is supported by the London Women's Leadership Network, part of the NHS London Leadership Academy, which is a pan-London NHS leadership development organisation working to support healthcare leaders across the capital. Leaders Plus has worked with the NHS London Leadership Academy to develop practical guidance for managers and parents in the NHS to navigate that very crucial period before, during and after maternity leave, share parental leave and adoption leave. If you are about to go on parental leave or are just about to return to work, I highly recommend you download the guidance for free from the NHS London Leadership Academy website or the Leaders Plus website. All too often, new mums and dads tell me they feel they need to choose between their career aspirations and enjoying their young children. And I just think it shouldn't have to be this way. And it doesn't have to be this way. And that's why I set up a fellowship programme for Leaders with Babies, which includes senior leader mentors, career development support, general support with work-life balance and so on. But I realised that actually... The role models that we speak to on the programme have so much more to offer and I want a wider group of people to be able to access them than can actually sit in the room during the fellowship programme. So that's why I set up this podcast. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you find it useful. My aim is that you can take away some really practical tips as well as some inspirational food for thought to help you find the way that works for you in combining and maintaining your ambitious career aspirations whilst looking after your baby or toddler. And I am delighted to have Geraldine Strathy with us here who was on our first panel event and was brave enough to back the idea of bringing lots of leaders with young children and their babies into the House of Commons and share her experience. So I'm really excited to have you here. And why don't you introduce your role and your career as well as your growing family? Great. Well, thank you so much indeed, Bertie, for inviting me and coming back again to speak with me. I have the fondest of memories of that day and seeing 45 buggies in the House of Commons. I'm not entirely sure the House of Commons has recovered, but you started an amazing movement and I'm really, really thrilled to support you with that. So perhaps if I start just telling you a little bit about my career. I was born in Northern Ireland. I grew up in an area of kind of great deprivation and an area where opportunities weren't there for everyone. I went to medical school and intending to be a general practitioner because I thought that was a good role in a community that could actually help people. But as soon as I met my very first patient with severe mental health problems in a big institution as a medical student, When I heard her story and I heard about the abuse she'd suffered, about the terrible ill health she developed as a result of that, I knew that that was where I was meant to spend my life. So for me, I would say that what has carried with me throughout my whole life is that sense of my values. I've always been very clear about my values. They're about helping individuals have a life that promotes their well-being and happiness that can prevent the development of mental ill health. And having a society that respects difference, promotes equalities and gives people opportunities to realise their potential. Sorry if I'm getting this wrong in my labours, but I think you were pretty much one of the most senior people in the NHS about leading the mental health approach. So I've had a portfolio career. 
I have always worked as a frontline clinician, which I have absolutely loved. But I have always, and I think, again, it's another message I would give to emerging leaders or people with kind of leadership, ambition and potential. Having a portfolio of roles is often very, very helpful, both in expanding one's own kind of brain and thinking, but also in then having a unique selling point that perhaps others coming into later leadership roles may not have. So I've worked in my last, I suppose, really big role was as the National Clinical Director for Mental Health in NHS England. I was the first National Clinical Director for Mental Health in NHS England. And that was in 2012 when we had this wonderful, creative group of people. We had Norman Lamb as our minister. We had people. We had, you know, wonderful celebrities. We had people who were willing to tell their story. And we were able to go from having only 10,000 people in the whole country looking at the mental health part of the main NHS information website. That was in 2012 to by 2016, we had 32 million people hit on the website every day. I have a bit of a tradition of going into places where others have not gone before. I quite like new challenges. So my role just before that was the first ever medical director for mental health and dementia for the London region. And that was about mobilising networks of people patients, carers, all disciplines of staff, the third amazing charity sector we have in this country, all the different parts of the NHS, local governments, you know, working towards suicide prevention, mobilising with the British Transport Police and their system, which is incredible, all the different police forces, the fire services in the different parts of London, that kind of whole building up momentum and helping bottom up movements, social movements to occur. That's been very successful in many initiatives in London. I now work globally on consulting in mental health and wider healthcare policy and strategy, usually about how to develop a social movement, how to build up momentum for mental health education, prevention, better access to services. And I work at the Care Quality Commission, where again, as a previous portfolio role in regulation, I see regulation done well and empoweringly as being a huge helpful lever for a country to be very clear about the standards that are needed and help and support to people to achieve those. And you've done all this after bringing up a family. So I had my first child when I was 28 which in the days when I had it, that was considered quite old. Mm -hmm. But I'd wanted to get at least my basic medical training and my postgraduate psychiatry membership under my belt. And I'd done some research, again, around suicide, interestingly. So I had my first child and I went on to have three others. So I have three boys and one daughter. And throughout having those children, I did a variation of part-time roles, portfolio roles. I went back to full-time working when I was 38, so kind of 10 years later. And I've always worked having children, partly because, and I think this is again really important, I kind of know who I am. I love using my head. I love mobilizing social movements and things. I'm actually not that great at housework and cooking has never been high on my kind of, uh, what's the right word, skill set. So I kind of, I love working with people to develop things, to come up with new ideas, develop new systems. I felt it was important for my children to see me as who I was as well. 
I can remember one particular Christmas when I had four of my children at four different schools because they were all different ages. And each school seemed to have a parents' night, a Christmas play or a fundraiser and a carol singing. And I remember sitting there thinking, oh, how am I going to get the time to go to work? Because, of course, in mental health, while almost everybody else in the system is saying, isn't it lovely? We can wind down. It's Christmas. Actually, Christmas is a really, really lonely, difficult time for people that have mental health challenges. So I remember some of those really busy times, both at home and at work. You know, you've asked me before, what do I think are the top tips for people? How did I kind of survive some of those things and keep going? I used to have a Friday afternoon where I would sit with another really good friend who was a pediatrician with young children and we would eat iced buns. And there was something about that Friday afternoon as our children played. It was a safe space knowing that however frenetic it is in the week, on that one set point in the week, we've got real downtime. Just somebody that you trust totally, you can have fun with. I think knowing where you can use resources, what resources are available to you is very helpful. Good childcare. There is nothing that I used to find more stressful than if I didn't feel I had warm, kind, loving, highly competent childcare. And it's for me, that was, I couldn't leave home without knowing that there was really good childcare for my children. I've had all different sorts of childcare over time. I know that being a parent and always wanting to get back to my children and be there for the stories and bath time and playing and homeworks. That meant I used my time at work, very task-oriented, very task-focused, not terribly patient, I would say, about sitting in meetings where people were talking. And do you feel being a parent has influenced how you have been in a leader in any shape or form? Absolutely, completely. I was and I continue to be a very different sort of leader because I had my children. And because I think the joy of children and the real challenge, I think parenting is actually the hardest job. I think it is absolutely the hardest job because you have to love the child you have, not the one that you thought you were going to get or necessarily the one that is like you at all. Because every child is different, and like every patient, you know, it really helped me that the parallels and some of my children are dyslexic, as am I. And that motto of the Dyslexia Society is, if they don't learn the way you teach, then teach the way they learn. And that I find really helpful with my own children in helping them optimize their potential. I find it hugely helpful with my patients because instead of doing care plans with people where we were kind of the experts in the team suggesting the care plan, my mantra to my patients used to be, so guess what? There are 26 letters in the English alphabet. So if care plan A doesn't work, we can go to B, C, D, E. I've never had to go beyond G. And the way we're going to do that is we've sat together and worked on care plan A. When you come back again and work together Let's see which bits of that have worked for you and which bits haven't. And then we'll build on the bits that have worked. And however we've done it and what, however you've managed to approach it, we will incorporate that into the next plan. I think being a clinician that can work with people to help them really realize their potential as people, as well as the recovery and the improvement in their ill health, is that was hugely satisfying. That wouldn't have happened. And I think also because of having children and having to juggle time and having to have really, really tight time management, I think learning to find ways to work with people efficiently, 
helped. So I've always been really puzzled by why clinically people aren't very clear with patients at the beginning. So let's just sit down at the beginning and work out what is our contract of working together? What do you want to get out of this relationship? And I can tell you what I can offer. And I think often clinically people drift into seeing people over and over again, sometimes in outpatient clinics, sometimes in care coordinating roles, without there being clarity about what the contract is between you. So I think being able to be efficient. The other thing is thinking much more about how do you make it easier for people? So you, you make things easier for your children. You're constantly looking to say, what can I do to help them walk or help them learn to read or help them do whatever? How can I break down any fear or concerns they have? And you take that into the workplace. And I have to say, having now got in the last amazing year two grandchildren, the utter joy of being able to, and as a grandparent, I have to say, you have a lot more time to spend just looking at their assets, looking at what they're good at, looking at if they appear to be left-handed, can you help them become a bit more ambidextrous? Vice versa, if they've got socialization skills, helping them to do that. Those are things that to me are totally transferable attitudes and cultures that you can take between being a parent and being a leader in the work, whatever kind of work mm. you're doing. I never felt that I wanted to be doing the same thing day in and day out for years because to me, life is about lifelong learning. So I had to reprogram my own thinking to think, actually, this is a marathon, not a sprint. I may have some sprints in my career, but I'm going to look at this over the long term. So in fact, I had parts of my career where I'd suddenly get a really good opportunity or I would take on a portfolio role a day a week, becoming an inspector in regulation. I had some periods doing research and writing some publications and some of those helped me. I think it's important to follow your instinct. If your instinct somehow says, don't say no to that because somewhere in your heart and soul, you kind of know that's going to be something that will really take you forward and make a difference, then I would say follow it. If anybody had ever said to my medical school year, people will get big national roles in their late 50s, early 60s will become medical director for a whole region, one of the biggest, most high profile regions in the world almost, in it kind of mid 50s. I wouldn't have believed that. Mm. And I think in today's world, I think it's great that parents, there's so many men and partners of all sorts that are committed to saying, well, let's agree, I may have my high profile time now, but then your time will come or my high impact time. But I think that recognition and understanding that it's constant support and helping you develop that USP that just kind of helps you along. Does that mm -hmm. make sense? Yeah, it does. And you actually said something on that initial panel event when we met mm -hmm. and it really stuck on me. I'm telling it to everybody since that we're all going to work until 70. So it's totally fine to give ourselves that time. I do hear, however, lots of people say to individuals who are working part time, either explicitly or implicitly well actually you're not really committed anymore because you're working part-time so you just want to take the foot of your pedal that obviously mm. wasn't true for you but did you experience any of that sort of messaging and if yes how did you oh it? my lord <laughs> so the kind of messaging I experienced and remember this is quite some time ago was well you've been working part-time and you're saying you want to do some extra time and go up to four days a week. Shouldn't you really be at home bathing your babies? Isn't that kind of really your work? To which my response was, actually, Professor, thank you so much for the advice on my parenting. I'd actually come for some advice professionally. My, I have a really good health visitor who gives me advice on parenting. It probably didn't help my career very much, but I experienced so many attitudes like that. Which So I think the other thing is, 
I think that I did is I never felt that I had to stay in the big white profile organizations. So my very first consultant job, I had done lots of research and led some kind of national research. And I could have stayed and got an academic job and a relatively, probably an easier life. But I wanted to see would it work in practice. So I went somewhere. My very first role was in Greenwich, where there are actually no services at all. And we had to build them from scratch, which we did by building partnerships with GPs and working in GP practices. And it's always that thing about be true to yourself, be true to your values. You will find a way if you think about working with others and through others and don't feel the sacred cow organizations, the ivory towers may appear to be the pinnacle of a successful career, but actually they aren't always and the amazing consultancies with their choreographing and socializing and all sorts of templates, etc. They may appear to be the pinnacle, mm. but there is nothing on earth to rival nitty gritty walking the front line in a range of places and making things happen practically on the ground. So what I would say to people is there may be points in your career where you take a sideways move, but to do something with people who are committed to making things happen, who are committed to helping you be successful, where it's going to be easier to build alliances that will actually make you successful. Mm. Finding yourself, I think particularly when you're at the early stages of your career, even the middle stages, and you have a lot of other personal commitments, whether it's towards children or grandchildren or caring responsibilities with kind of aging family members. Think really carefully. I had a set of criteria, which was, do I actually like these people? Can I have fun? Having a bit of fun at work is really important. Have they got integrity? And then are they people that they aren't going to sit there and go, should we? They're going, we have to, but how can we? What are the fastest way we can move to do? And then the third thing is working. It really helps if you work with other like-minded people, but who have different skill sets that you mm. can kind of recognize and mobilize. So I suppose my tendency has never been to aim for the traditional what's perceived as traditional success. Mm. I've much preferred to develop skills, as many skills as I can. And I've never applied for a high profile role unless the local service or the team or the community or the organization I was working in has already succeeded. Mm. Yeah. And that theme of purpose comes through so much. And I think there's something about if you, so especially for the people who love, that, this sounds bad, but for the mm. people who love being with their children, I have to admit, I love my children, but I don't always love being with them. So actually to make that choice not to be with your children, actually doing something that is very purposeful and very really making a difference is incredibly valuable so when you had two or three different roles at the same time how did you negotiate boundaries how did you negotiate your workload while at the same time looking after young kids okay so I certainly probably couldn't say that I am the world's best I was the world's best at boundaries but I think I suppose the lessons that I learned and because I have juggled many portfolios over time is that if you're going towards the same sort of goals because you kind of choose you might not think it but you instinctively choose portfolios and roles that have some alignment and interdependency with each other working smart is very important so being very very smart so say for example at the minute I work in the care quality commission on the changes to the mental health law 
and also population health. In one of my other roles, which is a non-executive director on the Department of Health's Community Health Partnerships, which is about building estates and technology and kind of digital potential into the future 10-year plan integrated systems. Both those two, actually, if I do literature searches, if I do international reviews, the, the contacts I have, the things I can read, there are many... I would say probably 60% of the content that I'm reading about population health, about systems, is very helpful to both roles. So you become more targeted about what you read, knowing that you've got to make the cross Mm. connections and kind of fill it in between both. You learn to be smart. There are still some patients of mine that I would love to find them because they're people who were my patients before I had children. And I'd read all the books about be consistent, always be calm, always do the same things. And then, of course, you become a parent and you're trying to juggle everything and you just know how difficult it is. So, yes, absolutely. And I think it's when you certainly I had a very naive assumption going into parenting that, you know, my children would all love to read. It would be easy. I wouldn't say I was academic, but I love learning and that, you know, everybody would love learning and they would find it so easy. And actually, that's not the way it turned out. And then you're trying to juggle which child needs the most support in different ways. I have a wonderful husband, but he worked abroad a great deal of the time. So you're kind of trying to juggle that side of things as well. Always, for me, there always was that kind of, how do I make sure I give each child the attention they need at the different times? I definitely wouldn't say I was successful in that, but I had some very wise friends who would say things like, you know, you're in this for the long term. You will be their mother always. You may even be the grandmother to their children. Yes. So it's a marathon, not a sprint. So yes, lots of challenges. And I made very many career compromises because I always, partly because my husband worked abroad, I always wanted to work very, very close to where I lived so that if there was any problems at schools or any, you know, parents' evenings, sports days, I would try to get to the majority of those Mm. things that kind of mattered to the children. Was I the perfect mother? Oh, my Lord, no, absolutely not. Definitely not. So you sound very wise when you're talking about it now. Mm. Can you relate to people like me who have moments of massive guilt? And how do you look at that now? I suppose the way I looked at it then was... Perhaps it was because of my, uh, as I said, I grew up at a time when, so my mother was a really, really bright person. And I come from a long line of women who, A, lived to 92, are high, you know, disco dancing still, some of them, (laughs) and always kind of ran businesses right up into kind of relative old age when I look back. And my mother had a different career path. So she was a civil servant. And of course, in those days, if you were, the minute you got married, you had to leave your job, let alone if you were having children, there was no way. And she was a really bright woman who I think the same thing that we would both say is you love your children, but being with them all the time is not good for you or them all the time. So I, she actually didn't work for the first 10 years of my childhood. And because it took that long, given the circumstances that we were living in, to actually get to be included in the workforce, the state Northern Ireland was in at that time. And I saw someone and it was like somebody switched on every light bulb when she went back to work. And it kind of made me think, even as a young, I suppose, just start of teenager, my mother is really happy 
because she's working. And my father was in a position that he could partly work at home. And I remember thinking, this is really good. I can see the role modeling. This is me. Never thinking that. And I kind of thought that maybe it's the same for everybody. So, and then I saw a lot of mums who didn't work, who were people that probably really been the professional person or the worker is who they were, but they couldn't do it because of the circumstances around childcare and all the rest of it. And it's that bit about you have to understand who you are. I'm not, being at home all day is just not who I was. And I thought I want my children to see the role model of who I can be. I want to be happy in myself as a person. I do want to make the world a better place for them. I want them to see what I'm trying to do successfully or not. And if I stay at home all day, what I wouldn't want to do is to drive all my ambition through them that they had to go to a particular university or they had to have a particular role. And I think that's quite hard not to do. If you are investing everything in the children and you're at home with them, and that's kind of not who you are. And also because it's this whole bit about you have to love the child you've got. Not necessarily because they won't come packaged the way that you thought they were going to come, partly because of their dyslexia. A number of my children just didn't like reading. I mean, reading is the only thing I knew from my childhood because I grew up in a town in Northern Ireland with 25 pubs, 10 churches and one library. So guess where I spent most of my time? So I thought reading was like the vision into the whole exciting world. And people develop at different times. So when I look at my children now, I mean, what fascinates me is one of my children who really did not read, partly the dyslexic thing, has got a house that it's almost impossible to find a space without books in it, is an amazing reader, almost a bit of a philosopher. We have the most fascinating discussions. In a sense, what I'm saying, and sorry to be so roundabout, is you have to faith in yourself and what your values are and be who you are. Be respectful of the fact that your children too may develop in very different ways. Make sure they can see the values of the family and have faith that when the time is right for them, and that may not be when they're at school, it may not be in the 20s, it may be in the 30s, that actually many of the things that you find enjoyable or that you felt helped life and things be better, they will find that in their own time Mm. as well. And it's having that faith, how we treat our children and how they're treated at school and how society treats children is so vital. You know, if you think about, we have what, one in 10 children living in poverty in this country. We've had very little previous investment in children's mental health. We've had decreasing, in many places, investment in Sure Start and parenting programs. Mm. I'm not sure we've given as much thought as we could to supporting parents with children with really good childcare Mm. as they've done in other countries. 60% minimum of the patients that I've seen with really severe, lifelong mental ill health, the origins are in childhood, Mm. physical, sexual or emotional abuse. We have to get it right for our children and help them find themselves. And then I think they are, I mean, the joy that I've had from my children is unbelievable. I learn so much from Mm. them. They teach me. And the fact they've now given me two and this almost about to arrive third little grandson. Amazing. Wonderful. Fantastic. You spoke about your own happiness. I think that's an important topic to pick up because I'm just interested in how you managed your own mental health and well-being throughout having young children and progressing your careers and holding down a number of different roles. I think like everyone, one has one's major, absolute major ups and downs, times when it just feels intolerable. 
And I think some of that for me, when I look back on it, is when the important resilience systems that you need to put in place. So my very good friend I used to meet with on a Friday mm. afternoon and we'd have pink icing and yellow icing buns and that space that we had to talk together. And then she incredibly tragically died of cancer. And for a long time there Sorry kind of wasn't, yeah, there wasn't anyone who could take that place. So not having a resilience system around you, that's difficult. I think the other thing is when you drive yourself too hard. I mean, I think for me, I used to say to my friends and my husband, if I come back reincarnated, do not let me have anything to do with inequalities because it is so hard. Mm. And I think one of the reasons I have ke I kept going for 42 years in the health system around mental health was just thinking this, you know, why century after century has the world stigmatized people with mental ill health? Why is it that every time there's a new policy or a new budget, people with severe mental health, with psychosis particularly, lose out. We know there are effective ways of helping people. We know there are ways that we can actually help a very significant proportion, get into employment, have a good life, not live in poverty, not die 20 years prematurely, not be alienated for their families. Why does our society not want to change that? So I think sometimes that you have a child at school with dyslexia and the school, I remember that one of my kind of, I suppose, I don't often get really cross, but I did get very cross because it was a headmistress who said, I hear you're wanting to talk about this dyslexia thing. Well, here's a dictionary of phonetics. They say that if you do phonetic learning, your child will learn. And I did something I'm quite ashamed of, but I kind of went out to my car and I got the British National Formulary, which is, you know, the book of all the different medications and drugs. And I went back in and said to her, I just thought I'd return the favour. So if any of your family or children or anybody is ill, here is the book on medications. You know, that's what they say can help. And I'm not often a horrible person like that. But when people are not respectful of other people's difference and aren't willing to listen and aren't kind of solution focused and the things that you really care about aren't going forward and you know your children aren't getting the help they need or what you're missing something in some way to help them and you're not getting the juggling right then of course one has one's own ups mm. and downs mm. but that's again I suppose my drive my continuing drive which I suspect will probably be to the day I die which is saying how can we help people we've been very successful with the NHS and the health system and with public health increasingly on board and local government in helping people understand how they can build their physical health. Mm. People may choose not to do healthy things, but most people now know what they could be doing. Mm. We can do exactly the same thing in mental health. And so what we haven't got at the minute is we're not giving people the life skills they need. How do you build your own resilience toolkit? Mm. There are 21 major life events that are likely to be significantly stressful how do we help people? Does that, how many people know what those 21 are? How do you position yourself to compensate for that, to prepare for it? We know that life transitions, so you know, increasing numbers of young people going to university and then suicide, transition from home to university, away from family into a far more competitive academic environment. These are really difficult times, but it's completely predictable. Mm. What can we do as a society to be work smarter about the way we do things? And one needs to apply it to oneself if one's mm. trying to promote it to other people. Yeah. So for me, I found I never had any, I was very lucky so far. I've never had any massive adversity, I think, in my life. But actually having my children and at the same time starting up a social enterprise, well, actually both partners in our house starting up a social enterprise and having two children in the space of about three years really, really you know, challenged my well-being 
sometimes and what you're saying is absolutely right it's about identifying what happens when you are in those situations and when is it starting to go to get really tricky for you and then what are the key interventions that you put in for yourself and you know for me it is just during that those time really focusing on exercise which may be different for different people hence I cycled today to <laughs> see you but yeah I'm sure it's way too complex you know than giving top tips but is there anything for you personally obviously you're you know mental health expert but aside from that is there anything for you personally that has really worked to get you to keep going because I think sometimes people give up during that very tense time of having young children and a very ambitious career because of their the impact of their own well-being, and understandably so. Yeah. I think just keep remembering your generations are likely to live to 90. You may be working to 70, 75. We don't always succeed the first time we do something. I would say I have learned more from the things I got wrong and the hard times almost than from the really good times and the things that did work well. So there's that bit about, okay, and I think it's also that thing about thinking sometimes things are very hard because they're hard the things that you think i'll crack that in a year and then you realize actually it's going to take three years so life is about kind of learning what works and what doesn't i think for me i feel so grateful that i became a mental health professional because if you really want to understand how to build your resilience how to juggle very difficult life meet with people with severe mental health problems. So what I learned from my patients were how to use music. I have patients with manic depression who one of their regulation tips was understand the top 10 pieces of music that make you feel you can fly, go up and understand what you need to calm you down. So I have very, very clear about my music. I love the use of colour. Colour is an amazing, all your senses, use your senses. So colour, I had a patient one time and she said to me, she said, do you realise there are 35 colours of green in the local park? And I went, mm, I don't think I did that. So I said, you find a way to show me. So she brought me a collage of leaves and grass and everything from a park. And there are 35 minimum. So every time I try to make, if I look at my window, I don't just look at the whole thing and pass by quickly. I will take just a minute of, I think people call, sometimes call it mindfulness these days, to just look at the colours that are there. Actually, the beauty and the utter joy of the natural world and what that can give to us. And I kind of took that to a level, I suppose, one of the things I realized is that multi-sensory experiences. Mm -hmm. So having, walking by the ocean, I love the ocean. If I don't get off to the Atlantic Ocean every so often, I feel deprived. It's kind of part of what we really love in our family. And that, if you think about it, you're walking on the beach, you're smelling, you're seeing these amazing things, you're hearing the sound, you're tasting it, you're touching it. I think probably the best holidays I've had, another great one was when we went on safari in Africa. Oh my word. I mean, the whole multi-sensoriness of you, the amazing sights, the signs, the smells, the t you know, all the rest of it. So I think it's just understanding yourself more. I think it's learning relaxation techniques in a kind of integral way. So I didn't discover yoga until I was about 45. I find that whole ability just to spend 40 minutes a week trying to reintegrate my busy body, my busy mind, my spirit. I certainly didn't find it easy, you know, to slow my thoughts, but I find that absolutely game-changing for me. Both my husband and I go to yin yoga, mm -hmm. so the yin and yang. That's been incredible. I think that must be a well-being strategy for the vast majority of people over the age of 60, at least, if not younger. I think the bit about having people in your life 
that you absolutely can trust to be discreet. You can say things to them. They will not respond based on how the advice they give you will change their lives. They will be truly active listening and thinking about you. I mean, I have a friend I had lunch with today who's masterminding the United Nations well-being strategy. She is someone that we may not see each other for two years. And when we sit down together, it's like we've had five minutes. You know, we just saw each other yesterday. So people in your life that are the people that you really value. I remember once reading this terrific article, and it was in one of the Sunday papers a very long time ago. And it was about what's the definition? How do people become friends? Mm. And first thing was, what's the definition of a friend? And I thought the best definition was two people who said a friend is someone who when you spend time with them, they give you energy. You come away with energy. Even if you're talking about Mm. terrible, sad things, you come away with energy. Because I think especially if you are someone that has leadership and you like leading, you will often get seen as the strong person that people come to. So having the people that you can get that can give you the energy that you can just be completely open with. That applies at work as well. Just having those people that you can just not to be indiscreet, but just people that you can really say, look, how are we going to find a way through this? This is really, really hard. And most of the success stories I've seen at work is where three or four people say, do you know, I would really love it if we could do X. And then over five to 10 to sometimes 20 years, they've kept contact. They've helped each other. They've put each other in touch with contacts. It's about building your own resilience toolkit. Mm. I mean, the world is full of fantastic people who are always, there's always people who want to help. Mm. I remember one time when I really was at a very low ebb because there was all sorts of, we were trying to develop a great service and money had been promised and at the last minute it all got pulled. And I think one of my children, probably two or three of them with chicken pox or something, you know, those kind of scenarios. And I remember a really wise person saying to me, you know, every time, just when you think you're at your lowest ebb and it really is difficult, an ally, somebody who becomes an ally will just pop up won't be where you expect it. It may not even be in the people you know it, but somebody will pop up and they'll help you see things in a different way. And I have to say, I have certainly found that several times across my life. Mm. Just unexpected people that help you get your brain back into that positive thing. Mm, Definitely. And that's such a common misconception of leaders that you're there by yourself, this type of hero. But we all need, if to do amazing things that really change the world, we all need people like that in our lives. I can definitely picture people like that. And I'm sure lots of other listeners can. And if it feels really hard, that's because it is really hard. And it's a marathon, not a sprint. And just when you least expect it, you will get a sprint. If you are really clear about your values and what you want to do, and you may apply yourself across several different roles and jobs over time, but life is really exciting and you only lead one life. So keep thinking solutions, keep thinking relationships, keep thinking, I can make this work. Might not be this year, but I'll certainly do it next year. I'll find a new skill. I'll find a new person to help me. I'll find a new group. I'll get into a team. I may take a different step. I will make the world a better place for my children and my grandchildren. Mm, That's very inspiring. Thank you. I am going to ask you one last question, which Mm. is tell us about one of your favorite moments of combining an ambitious career with children or grandchildren for that matter. Oh, Lord. I've got so many, really. 
I think one of my very favorite moments was when, I think I said to you, safaris are really important to us, our holidays. Holidays, I suppose the other thing I should say is, for us, holidays were absolutely critical. I went through this very, very, very silly period when I took very few holidays and was trying to juggle everything. And that is just not sensible. It is really important at the beginning of the year. So I got to the point in the beginning of the year, in January, we would map out when we were going to take holiday. And even if it was, you know, just taking days out from where we were living, I don't think we ever, we seldom stayed anywhere other than self-catering because we've always liked that. So taking times and breaks. So I remember we were kind of in Africa and we were in Zimbabwe and children were in the car and we piled up at lunchtime. There was this waterhole just sitting there, great big waterhole. And we drove into the waterhole and... We were watching and we looked and suddenly these elephants started coming in. So first it was three elephants and then we looked and then there's six elephants. And then just without their six, they seemed to be getting a bit bigger. And then 12 of the kind of the biggest elephants we'd ever seen came in. And we ended up just sitting in this van with 250 elephants had come in from all sides. And the children were sitting in the car absolutely a, in the beginning, fascinated, then scared, then kind of fascinated again. And then they started talking to me because they used to hear me talk to patients on the phone and talk to other members of staff on the phone. So they're going, mum, you know that kind of breathing thing that you do? What's the breathing thing? Help us do the breathing, which is about breathing kind of using relaxation techniques. And what does Helen do for the... So we were kind of doing all this kind of thing. And then they were saying, and you know that thing you go on about, you know, smiling. Should we smile at the elephant's mum? Should we? So it was kind of taking all the clinical things that I did with patients to help them engage and be calm and kind of resolve things. And they were trying to apply the same techniques to being surrounded by 250 elephants in a waterhole to kind of their own little personal situation and I remember thinking we'd have had a very different conversation if I wasn't working and if they hadn't heard me you know team leaders on the phone and nurses on the wards on the phone and they used to come into the wards at Christmas with me and kind of do things and it was their ability to switch between the two worlds as well. Mm. Yeah that is fair enough there are some challenges that aren't easy to solve but thank you so much for being so open and honest in your reflections and uh, yeah I will talk about them I'm sure with Dean over, over tonight's dinner and as always you've been very inspirational so obviously this brings our podcast to an end thank you very much and also to the listeners thank you so much for listening if you want to support it you can subscribe and also rate it ideally with a five star review and of course if you have any conversations any points you want to contribute to those conversations then do get in touch with me either at vhefty on twitter or at leaders underscore plus by twitter you are very active on twitter aren't you are you doctor i'm at dr g underscore nhs i'm probably a little bit less active because of these grandchildren I have to say, if it's a choice between Twitter or the grandchildren, just at the minute, the grandchildren are definitely winning. Fantastic, fantastic. (laughs) Thank you so much. Pleasure. Thank you for listening again today. I really hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. I love the topic of purpose. And for me, it's really personal. The reason why I'm doing this podcast, why I've set up the Social Enterprise Leaders Plus, is because I feel a really deep personal sense of purpose around making a difference to gender equality. And um, like there needs to be a reason why why I'm not spending time with my kids. And, and for me, that reason is, is that deeper purpose. Anyways. 
Enough about me. I have some extremely exciting news. The Women's Leadership Network at the NHS London Leadership Academy and the Royal College of Emergency Medicine have just announced that they will part sponsor a few places for Leaders Plus Fellows on our award-winning fellowship for leaders with babies and young children. So if you don't know what this is, if you or a friend are on maternity or share parental leave or adoption leave, or if you have a child under three, and if you are passionate about the topics we discuss on this podcast around not wanting to choose between a really senior career and enjoying your young family, then you should definitely go right now to the website www.leadersplus.org.uk to download the application pack and find out more about the Leaders Plus Fellowship. In a nutshell, you'll get access to a senior leader role models, you'll get a senior leader mentor from a different sector to develop a peer support network across sectors and you also get evidence-based informed support to progress your career whilst enjoying your young children. And it goes without saying, if you do have a baby, you are very welcome to bring him and her along to our professional development events and sessions. The application deadline is on the 13th of February. Um, there are also some subsidised places for people who are not on from the NHS. I would say it's about maybe 10% of people usually on the fellowship are from the NHS. So it's for people across all sectors. If you do want to find out more or you, if you just want to have a call, there's also a very technologically fancy function on the website where you can book a call with me. If that doesn't work, you can always email me on verena at leadersplus.org.uk. That's V-E-R-E-N-A at leadersplus.org.uk. The other thing I wanted to ask you is for your help in doubling listener numbers. So I really enjoyed the podcast so far and I've been so pleased with the response to the first series. And now with the second series, I would love to double the listener numbers. And that is only going to happen with your help. A massive thank you to everyone who's already been sharing it with their friends and family. It makes a huge difference. And of course, on social media. But if you do want to support our work, then if you could send a message to five friends who you think might enjoy this content, that would be lovely. And obviously also, if you have any suggestions or questions or comments or feedback for me, just generally about the podcast, then again, I would love to hear from you either on my email address, perina at leadersplus.org.uk, or you can get in touch via Twitter or Instagram on at leaders underscore plus. Thank you so much for listening and I'll speak to you again soon.